I am, it is good to see you here this morning. Um, our, as a church, we kind of really opened this last year, uh, with, or this year, we opened this year uh, with a lot of busyness. And so I just want to say thank you again to all of you who have been involved in that busyness. And uh, hopefully, uh, or I should say, it looks as the calendar looks, it should slow down a little bit for us. All right, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, in this brief time in your word, I do pray that you would help me. As Lord, I am the vessel here to share your word, to help those who are here to understand your word. But Lord, none of that can happen without the power of your spirit and according to your grace and mercy. And so we pray that, Father, we pray that you would Help me and help us together to know more and to grow and become more like your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So several months ago, I was reading an article. It was a series of interviews uh, with the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of uh, what were Nazi leadership during the time of Nazi Germany. One of the interviews really caught my attention. It was the grandchild of Joseph Goebbels. Now, if you don't know who Goebbels was, he was the head of Nazi propaganda. Uh, You can get on YouTube and you can uh, listen to some of his speeches. They're in German, but a number of the YouTube videos have actually the caption underneath to let you know what he's saying. And I would tell you, at least this is my opinion, that if you go and you listen to him speak, some of the things he says would make your blood curdle. See, Joseph Goebbels was responsible not only for making sure it was okay to be an anti-Semite or be anti-Jewish. Joseph Goebbels was responsible for making the public conscience of Germany okay with the existence of extermination camps. What he did was evil. Now, the reason the uh, interview caught my attention, because unlike all of the other grandchildren and great-grandchildren that were interviewed... This gentleman had decided not to change his last name. Most of the ones in the article had changed it to something. Of course, many of them had last names that were associated with tremendous evil. But he chose not to. And that was not because uh, he was proud of what his grandfather had done. But it was his desire to see if he could redeem the name. And he had actually spent most of his life going to schools in Germany and other events Uh, helping the children there or the adults there understand what allowed or what led his grandfather to commit such tremendous evil. Now next week we are going to encounter uh, probably what is the most popular text in all of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will hear their land. It's a verse that has a tendency to make its rounds on Facebook, especially during political years. But you see, in order to understand that text, which we'll look at next week, we have to understand our text this morning. They go together. You see, next week's text is God responding to the prayer that Solomon prays in this week's text. And the key to understanding next week's text is understanding two words in that verse. My people. Our text this morning is Solomon 
making a prayer of dedication that is entirely about God's relationship with his people. And if we go through this and we read his prayer and all the things he prays for, not only for himself, but for the nation, for the people of God, we find five identifying marks that he makes about God's people. Specifically, these were marks that were to be on display when they gathered for worship. And they are still marks that we should have today when we come to worship God via the living temple who is Jesus Christ. So, surprise, surprise this morning, I have five points for you. Number one. So who are God's people? What are the marks that they bear when they gather to worship? Number one, they are a people who humbly worship an infinite God. They humbly worship an infinite God. If you look at verse 18, Solomon asks the question, Will God dwell with men on earth? And he makes this statement, Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. The idea there is Solomon saying, I am coming to pray knowing that you are beyond He is essentially coming to pray to say, God, infinite God, would you lower yourself to meet us? He's asking this God to bend down so his ear can hear the prayers of these finite little people. He's asking the God of the universe if he would get up close and see this temple that was built for him. Solomon is praying as somebody who totally understands who he is in the presence of God, a dust mite. And he declares, look, you know what? I understand that God does not fit in this temple. And I understand not only does God not fit in the heavens, that would be the universe where the stars and the planets are, but he does not fit in the heavens of heavens. The place where you, we would say a person, when they pass away and are a Christian, that's where they go, the heavens of heavens. The container of billions of souls is still not big enough for the God that Solomon is praying to. And he says, it's an understanding that the only way these people were ever going to be noticed is if God noticed them on purpose. If God paid attention to them. Now, the comparison, if you were reading this or one of the original readers of this, the comparison you're supposed to be making in your mind is with an idol. The Bible will say things like an idol that's made out of wood might have ears, but it doesn't actually hear. An idol made of stone might have eyes, but it doesn't actually see. You might have an idol that has both ears and eyes and even legs, but it must be carried about by the people that worship it. But see, the people who worship the true God of heaven are people who recognize they worship a God that is not dependent at all on the people that worship him. And in fact, it's laughable to even consider that idea. Now this is important because it sets things in their rightful place. If you're a Christian here this morning, you did not reach God. You did not climb a moral ladder to get to him. And you are not a Christian because you were born into the right family. You're not a Christian because you were born into the right country. 
you are a Christian, if you are this morning, you're a Christian because the infinite God paid attention to you. Because he sent his son to die for you, gave his Holy Spirit to you. He has done everything for you. And so any church and any teacher who stands before the people of God and makes God our servant, like the prosperity gospel does, is a false gospel. Any teaching that makes God somewhat of our partner and equal to us, like the social gospel does, preaches a false gospel. It has only been our hope. It has only ever been our hope if this great, big, infinite God got close. But there's another very sure biblical truth here. One that the original leaders, or original readers would need, and one that we certainly need today, and that is this. When, we, when the people of God see the greatness of God, they are certainly far more bold before men. You see, when God's people see men as great and God as small, we begin to crave the approval of men. We are quick to ignore what God has, says, has said. And the first readers of this book, they needed boldness. They needed to be reminded that this God, who is majestic and big, is majestic and big whether or not they acknowledge it or not. And acknowledging it was the way to get to boldness for his kingdom. It is why the author of Romans says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because the humble worship of an infinite God will make you bold before men. Number two. What are the marks of the people of God when they gather to worship? What you should find, number two, are a sinful people, a sinful people who have repented of their sin. Over the next few verses here in this chapter, you see uh, sin as a repetitive term. In verse 22, if a man sins against his neighbor, verse 24, because Israel has sinned. Verse 26, because thy people have sinned, thy servant has sinned. Verse 36, if they sin, because there is no man that does not sin. It's pretty clear Solomon is praying because he acknowledges the people of God are going to sin. And if you understand the the idea here, this is a full range of sins. We have sins against the neighbor. Things like stealing, lying, adultery. We have national sins like child sacrifice, the worship of idols, the perversion of justice. We have personal sins, lust, envy, covetousness. I mean, we go all the way back to Abraham. It's pretty clear that God's people have always been a sinful people. But if you go back through the text, you'll notice something else. Verse 24, they shall return and confess thy name and pray and make supplication. Verse 26, if they pray towards this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin. Verse 37, if they turn and pray unto thee in the land of captivity, saying, we have sinned. Solomon is saying, I not only expect the people of God to sin, but the true people of God are the people who are going to repent of their sins. He's going to repent. They're going to repent against the sins against their neighbor. They're going to repent of their national sins. They're going to repent of their personal sins. All of them. Now, one of the things that I know lots of people like to say is that we are sinners saved by grace. Very true. 
But the full thought is this, that you and I are sinners who have repented of their sins and were saved by grace. When you repent, you are admitting that you loved something more than you loved God. Of course, repentance should be a part of every Christian's life. Does it help us to confess, to turn away from our sins? But there's another benefit for repentance. Another benefit for repentance, if you make it part of your Christian life, is that hopefully, by God's grace and mercy, you learn what is and is not sin. Some of us here this morning, because of our background, carry around with us a list of sins. For some of us, that list is too long. For some of us, that list is too short. Some of us have things in our life we should have repented of a long time ago. And some of us carry around guilt and shame for things that God never called sin. But perhaps your mom did, or your cousin, or your friend. You see, God's people are a people who repent of the sins that God has defined. And they call it sin, and they don't add to that list. They neither subtract from that list. They are sinners who repent of sin. Number three, the marks of people, who, the people of God who gather for worship. Number three, they are sinful people who have been forgiven by God. Because if you go through the text, not only do you see an expectation that God's people are going to sin, you see an expectation here that they're going to repent of those sins, but you notice that Solomon prays about God's forgiveness of those sins. Verse 25, Solomon asks, Then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy people. Verse 27, Solomon again asks, Then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sins of thy servant. Verse 30, then hear from heaven thy dwelling place and forgive. Verse 39, then hear from heaven, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, maintain their cause, forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. It's a recognition of an admission of sin, a confession of sin, a repentance of sin, and a request for forgiveness is granted. You see, this is a big key idea in the Old Testament. This was the problem with the people that were taken to captivity. God said over and over, their refusal to repent, their refusal to ask for forgiveness, their refusal to return. And he called them stiff-necked and not my people. See, the people of God are people who understand that forgiveness must be sought out. Now, as we continue in this series in 2 Chronicles over the next few years, we are going to encounter some very wicked kings. Some of those wicked kings are going to repent of their sin. And God is going to forgive them. And we're going to see the people of the land who are going to sin. And they're going to be led to repentance by a leader. And God is going to forgive them. Now, here's the struggle. It is our most basic nature to try and merit forgiveness. Let me explain it this way. A husband, he might forget his anniversary, and he might ask his wife's forgiveness, and she might give it to him. 
But any decent man who loves his wife is probably going to try to do things to merit that forgiveness. Having forgotten their anniversary, he might over the next few days buy her flowers, make her breakfast in bed. He might even try and write her a poem. He will do the work until he thinks he's sure that he has earned the forgiveness she has already given him. And when he feels like he's done enough, he'll stop. But he'll keep that information just in case she ever decides to complain. And unfortunately, some of us try and do this with our relationship with God. We do sinful things. All of us will do those things. By God's grace and mercy, hopefully you go and you repent and you confess and you ask God's forgiveness. Now, the problem that I find for many Christians is they think that the next step after that is to somehow earn that forgiveness. I guarantee you, no matter what sin it is in your life, if that's the pattern you hold to, if you confess your sins, repent of your sins, ask God for forgiveness, and then you turn around and try to merit or earn that forgiveness, I guarantee you, you will make that sin again. Because the Bible teaches us that our forgiveness was bought by the blood of Christ. Everything we need to merit forgiveness was obtained for you by Christ. And to repent and then try and earn God's forgiveness is in fact a rejection of the only reason you can have to have forgiveness. What you and I are supposed to do is repent, ask for forgiveness, and walk away trusting that Jesus has done everything needed for you to have that forgiveness. Number four. Number four, the marks of God's people as they gather for worship, they are people who host others in worshiping God. They are a people who host others in worshiping God. Oddly enough here, Solomon's prayer is somewhat interrupted with verses 32 and 33. There's a flow of thought here. Clearly, Solomon is thinking about the people of Israel and himself and the covenant relationship they have with God. And then he interrupts the whole thing with a conversation about the stranger. The stranger comes because he has heard about this God. Comes to this temple. Solomon's praying for a very specific situation. A stranger, a foreigner, comes into the land, having heard about the greatness of the God of Israel, comes to this temple, to this house of prayer, and seeks God's help. Solomon's praying here that if that should ever happen, that he would want God to actually answer and do all that the stranger asks. And Solomon's reasoning here, as you read, is that he hopes that when the stranger sees that the God of Israel is in fact the mighty, wonderful God he has heard about, that God's name will spread beyond Israel. Now, I use the word host here because that's what's happening. God's people who know God are regularly coming to him, regularly worshiping, but here they make room for the stranger, the one who doesn't know him. Instead of having the attitude of maybe they should, God should bash them up on the uh, upside the head so they get their life right, instead Solomon prays that when they come to God's house and they knock at God's door, they would find Him home and get the answers that they seek. 
I want to point out here that Solomon does not pray, nor is anywhere in the Bible ever we ever instructed to change ordained worship for the stranger. This is not a seeker-sensitive prayer. This is closer to what Corinthians talks about. You have a people of God who are organized, dedicated, focused in their worship, so that when the stranger arrives and he experiences the worship with them, he comes to the conclusion, surely God is among these people. And this doesn't have to be complicated. For Paul, when he talks to the Corinthians, says it doesn't have to be complicated. For example, we want to be a church that's going to host outsiders, the strangers to God. We better be a church that's dedicated to each other. We're going to make a, it's going to be a hard time to make the case that we love each other if we're not dedicated to each other. And Jesus said, they'll know you by your love for one another. It means we need to be sharp. We need to be responsible. Now, that doesn't mean we turn into a militant church. It doesn't mean we don't have room for mistakes or failures. It just means we're not haphazard. And we should do simple things that we already do. Telling the people who come, it's page 146 in the Blue Hymnal. We're reading from Mark chapter 5. All public prayers should be easy and simple to follow prayers. If you run a church ministry this morning, one of the questions you should ask yourself is, how can I be a better host? And just think practically, you know what, a good host... I don't think I've ever been to somebody's house where they said to me, just guess where the bathroom is. Now, I have been to a few places where they've set a plate of food in front of me and go, guess what you're eating. Don't do that. Sit down and explain why you pray before you eat. Why you pray after Awana games. Jesus spoke simply. The gospel is simple. We should be simple and always ready to host the outsider for worship. And then number five, the mark of God's people as they gather for worship, they should be a people who prioritize intercessory prayer. In verse 40, Solomon makes one last appeal that God would hear all prayers ever prayed in this temple. He prays that God's presence would be in this place, that God's priests would be vessels of salvation, that the saints, the the people of God, would rejoice in gladness, that God would never turn away from Solomon, and that God would always remember the promises that he made to David. This last phrase, these last few verses in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 are actually a quote from Psalm 132. Isaiah also quotes from Psalm 132 and Isaiah 55. The promise that God made that David would always have somebody to sit on the throne. That the Davidic line of kings would never come to an end. This should have caused tremendous amounts of hopes for the original readers of this book. Because after the fall of Jerusalem, after 70 years of captivity, it meant that this promised kingdom that would be run by a child of David was still going to come. This final prayer of Solomon is something the Jews held on to for hundreds of years. 
And why, when Jesus showed up and said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand, there was no mistaking what was being said. If you've been through us, with us through this whole series, you'll note that we keep coming back to this. This confidence in the promises of God. We look at this prayer of dedication. We see a prayer of intercession. Solomon praying for and on behalf of the people. You see, there's a direct connection between us being a people who believe God keeps his promises and us being a people who prayerfully intercede for others. For example... In Revelation, Jesus says, he promises, that if he knocks at the door, if anybody was willing to answer, he will come in. So what should we pray? We should pray for our unsaved spouses and our unsaved children, not only that Jesus would knock, but the person we're praying for would answer, because we believe the promise. We're told that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And because that promise is true, we pray for our children and our grandchildren to call on the name of the Lord. Romans tells us that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we pray for those who suffer. We pray for those who struggle, that they would love God, and that whatever's happening in their life would be used for God's purposes because we have a promise that the outcome will be good. Because we believe the promises of God, we intercede for others in prayer like Christ did for us. So what are the marks that should be found in God's people when they come to worship God? You should find a people humbly worshiping an infinite God, growing in boldness before men. You should find a sinful people who have repented of their sins, learning what is and is not sin. We should find a sinful people who've been forgiven of their sins and understand that all that forgiveness has been bought for them. We should find a people who not only invite, but in fact make room for the outsider to come and worship. And we should find a people who so believe the promises of God that they pray intercessorily for each other. So that, no matter what your last name is, your country of origin your family background, your personal history, if you're one of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ, this is not only who you should be. In the eyes of God, this is who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this text, and I pray, Lord, we would be a people who bear all of these marks. And I pray, Father, these marks would be things that we would always be striving for, So we can be good representations of you, the people you call my people. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.